Baby, welcome back to Arrakis. Back to Arrakis. It's, it's thy boy. Thou boy. Thou hast boy. Spencer's enhancers bring the Arrakis. Ow, that's a good one. I like that. Bring the motherfucking Arrakis. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. What's cracking, baby? Fear is the mind killer. Don't be scared. We endure disc three of Dune. Meaning Wave Life Book Club. Meaning Wave Life Book Club. Feels like it works. Smash that like. It's that beautiful time of the week where you get to relax and listen to a beautiful book. Live soundtracked boy by your favorite DJ, you know? Your favorite DJ, artist, producer, and wave lord will be soundtracking. You know, one of the one of the greatest, uh, one of the most legendary, one of the most celebrated. Artworks of the modern world, baby. Oh my goodness. Make some noise. Spice must flow. Let there be glory. What's up, Alec Moran? Thank you for the $20 super chat, you bad man. Says, just show my support. I gotta sit this one out. I'm working a 104 hour work week and the body needs a rest. Time for burritos and snoozing. Much love, ACD and MAC. Hope everyone enjoys their night slash day. God bless. Well, I would suggest you put this on while you sleep and let it uh, infect your dreams, baby. That's what I would suggest. But, um, you know, what do I know? I'm just, uh, I'm just a wave lord, you know? Yes! Lord of Wave, rest yourself, baby. Shouts out to everybody locked in. We're going in tonight with the uh, audiobook club, the club of audiobooks. It's a beautiful club, and uh, it's a beautiful concept. And those of you who've been here before and enjoyed it, you know how great it is. Have you been here before? If you've been here before, uh, let us know about the book club. What is the book club? What's it mean to you? And while we get some, uh, some commentary together, while we get some words of meaning together, I'm going to play a song from Dune Wave because, uh, you know, there is such a thing as Dune Wave and there will be such a thing as Dune Wave 2. This is all leading up to Dune Wave 2. That's what this is doing. This is one big, long act of uh, leading up, you know, up-leading. <laughs> What's another word for up-leading? Up-leading, foreplay. That's one. Um, yeah. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, me and uh, Danica XIX, a.k.a. Comic Book Girl 19, did the Dune Wave EP. And if you haven't heard it, here's a track from it. It's pretty epic. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. What? I must not fear. 
Fear is the mind killer. Smash that like. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Obliterate the like. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. young human and look at it do it he jerked his hand from the box stared at it astonished not a mark no sign of agony on the flesh he held up the hand turned it flexed the fingers 
Pain, she sniffed. A human can override any nerve in the body. Ever sift sand through a screen? We Bene Gesserit sift people to find the humans. Paul felt that he had been infected with terrible purpose. Terrible purpose. He did not know yet what the terrible purpose was. Why do you test for humans? To set you free. To set you free. Free? Once, men turned their thinking over to machines in the hopes that this would set them free. 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 That only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. To enslave them. To enslave them. To enslave them. Thou shalt not make a machine the likeness of a human mind. Oh, boy. There you go, baby. That was listening. Against Fear from the Dune Wave EP, Kira the Dawn, Danica XIX. She's on Twitch right now watching Children of Dune. Akira. This is so amazingly timed. <laughs> but Dune Wave 2 is coming. Freedom! Why did someone just shout freedom in the chat? Freedom! Why did I shout it out? Why do I just see the word freedom and I have to shout it? Freedom! I just really like freedom, you know? And I see the word freedom written down in all caps. I have to read that loud. Freedom! Yes, I do. D-Man says raw for us. What does that even mean? Raw for us. Ooh, baby, I like it raw. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. Yes, that's everybody locked in. What's up, Calc's Cosmic Kangaroo says spice will flow. David Ewing said he's using the voice of Meaning Wave. Who is? Yes. <laughs> Fool killers in the house. What's up, baby? How many fools you killed lately? I hope it is many. Do you pissy them as you kill them? Or do you, do you maintain a stoic indifference? Hey. What up, Adam Synthman? Says, I can't wait. This is so much needed today. Epic activities only, says Sagittarius, and that's right. How's everyone's day going? How's everyone's day been? I've been hard at work on the new JVP Wave project. Oh! If you saw my Instagram, you might have seen a little bit of it. Hyper productivity times zone inhabitation still works, it seems. Instantly amazing first song. First thing done, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I just pissed myself laughing at the, at the epicness of it as it just spilled, spilt forth, you know, so to speak. You know, like, uh, you know, like in an Indiana Jones movie where you got like a village, you know, and someone's got a cart and it's full of fruit and the fruit spills forth. It's like that, you know, just like loads of it. Spilling forth by Joe. Everybody smash that like. We're going in. Again, ready to go in. It's Audio Book Club Day. Hurrah! Audio Book Club Day. Spencer Barrett is in the house. Spencer Barrett says he's going to be listening to this as he sketches for Inktober this evening. Very good. 
Sketch powerfully, my friend. Good evening, MAZ. This is Zachary Brooks. Good evening, Zachary Brooks. Robert Easley excited for Dune Book Club. Rafa Gallego says, what's going on? Dune Book Club. Cindy Bailey says, has Danica stopped by one of these yet? No, because I just realized I happened to stream these when she's streaming. Which is this, like of all the nights I could do this, it seems I picked the worst one. <laughs> with regards to that, with, with regards to crossover potential, I think I'll get her on next week somehow. Yeah. What up, Alec Moran? What up, Spencer? Hey, hey, hey. What up, Megazino says, I'm excited. That is the right reaction to epic activities such as these by Jove. Correct. Source must flow. Dun, dun, dun. Yo. Cool Killer 3644 says that was an awesome yet yeeted morning show and cool thousand follower party on Twitch. Oh yeah, I forgot to say. So many epic occurrences. So many epic activities. Who was here this morning? Who was here this morning? This morning was crazy. I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened. I woke up, I was really tired, you know, I was like, ah. Right, got to drag my carcass out of this bed and go do that morning show by Jove. And, you know, what I was doing for a while is, like, you know, I've been doing the morning show for uh, a couple months. We're on episode, like, 137. I don't know. What's that? Three months? Four months? I don't even know. I, I told you, baby, I'm a wave lord, not a math lord. And uh, anyway, like, you know, sometimes what I'd do, if I was feeling really sleepy, I'd play, like, a sleepy set, you know? Because that's how I felt. So I was like, wait a minute, I'm doing this wrong. What if I just went in and played like it was 1 a.m. in the club? What would happen? What happened was within five minutes, I was fully powered up and I was full of excellent energies, you know, from, from the gang who were locked in, who were excited and all that. And it was a really, really epic DJ set. It was one of the greatest. One of the most great and powerful by far. By Jove, in fact. Phil Killer says, I definitely was there this morning. Yeah, and uh, oh yeah, and then we crossed it. We hit a thousand followers. Uh, we hit a thousand followers. Basically, like about half an hour after we finished. Because we got homies on Twitch now. Other DJ homies, you know. And uh, one of our DJ homies, uh, Steve Disco Newsome, uh, was like shouting us out and uh, getting all these homies to follow us on Twitch. So we now got, we crossed our first thousand followers on Twitch, baby. What a beautiful thing. Walking Mall Poet says, this morning was incomparable. Some might say it was a parable. You know. And uh, I believe it should be on the podcast feed. If Twitch Hero Alex, uh, you know, did his thing, his epic thing, it should be on the podcast feed for you to listen back to. And uh, is it on the YouTube feed? Did it get used? YouTube Hero Alex, did Twitch Hero Alex let you know? Anyway. What up? What up, though? What's up, Kyla? Says, I started reading Dune for the first time this morning. I'm ready. Nice. Nice, nice. Swash. K 
Cats and Cringes in the house. So just follow down Swish. Maybe I'll catch a stream at work sometime. If you are working uh, from the hours of 7 CT, then you should. Yeah. Robert Easley says, uh, Most book publishers passed on Dune. Eventually, Chilton, known for car repair manuals, published it, and it was a hit. I recall it was their first fiction book. Ha! Why is it everything great has a similar story, you know? Everything truly great seems to have that kind of story. Isn't it like everybody turned down Star Wars? And, you know, everyone said the Bible was shit. <laughs> well, Sivian says, Akira, did you try the mouth taping during sleep last night? What mysterious dreamland were you transported to? The answer is no. I did not, but others did. Someone was in their stream this morning saying they did, and they had mental dreams. I did not. I don't think sellotape would work on my face. And also, I think it would hurt my, my mustache. I don't, I don't want to pull out my mustache. Yo. Hello, Megazine, who says, People listen to too much trash garbage. <laughs> what a funny comment in the middle of all the la 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 la. Mega Xenu is annoyed with people listening to too much trash garbage. Oh, well. Let, let them be. They know not what they do. They, they will discover the truth and the light. Soon enough by Joe. Woo! D-Man says, Akira, i got a fan here who wants to hear you roar. I don't even know how to roar. I can't roar on command. I can play on command, but I've not yet learned how to roar on command. I don't even know what a roar is. I guess it's the thing I do, you know, but... I don't know, baby. All I know is we're getting ready to go in on the Dune Club, and you better smash that like so the homies can come in. People need their notifications by Joe. Yes, they do. Notifications for the people. Notifications for one and for all. Let there be a uh, splash, you know. Now, yeah, where were we? We were, we were reading through the chat and getting ready to go live. Yes, we were. Yes, we were. Strunkle28's here, said, uh, finally made it to the book club. Hurrah! Cosmic Kangaroo says, Kangaroo says, now, dear, roar. Roar on command. Yeah, I have no idea. You know, it's like Hercules early was like, come play pillow fighting with me, dada. Now, I remembered how to do that. Remember how to do that. Patrick Smith said this morning was invigorating. Uga Booga says, hooray for us. Hooray for Akira. Hooray! Hooray! Spice must flow. Yes, it must. Yes, it must. Shout out to Zachary Brooks. He's going to ban Prasis. We're preparing to record our second EP. Then go to work. Much love, Miles and ACD. Get after it, baby. Proud of you. Yeah. And now I've got confused with the chat. Anyway, we're all here. Very nice to be here. Uh, we're going to do an international high five. Uh, kindly let me know where you are. Let me know where you are right now. And uh, sum up the first two chapters of Dune for us in a very, very short, pithy like sentence. Maybe a couple of emojis, maybe three words, something short. Because I want to do one of those previously on Dune. And I want to do it by reading your, your smartness, you know, by reading your beautiful words. And also getting the, high, the international high five preparations in. You dig. So let me know where you are, baby, where your body be at. 
and uh, give us a recap of the first two episodes of Dune in a couple words. Yeah. What up, Jinx McJinx, fellow Texan in the house? We got Rafa Gallego in Bangkok. Nice. Nice. Cats and Cringe is in Wales. No, he isn't. That's uh, YouTube Hero Alex talking about me. Ah, yes. Yes. What up, Luke Brubaker, Sherwood Orr, Alan Synthman, previously on June. Spicy. Cedric Church, out. It starts in the middle of a giant story. Yes, it does. Spencer, Indiana, bring the motherfucking rackets. That's right. Cosmic Kangaroo. Said something. And it ran away from me. Australia, pain and destiny. Michael Tapia sending love from Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you very much. Cats and Cringe is in Tennessee, land of the gods. Rick Adelsey is in Manchester, United Kingdom, Dune, chapter one. Spooky lady. Two. Ah, what the fuck? Get after it. Recompose myself after that. That was perfect. That was perfect. Full killer 3644 Maryland. Paul passes an important test and trains, then goes to a sand planet. Pretty concise, pretty but pretty much it. Don't think you missed very much. Uh, Dexter Sandscores, WNC here. Douglas Holloway, Houston. Paul Atreides takes stock of a destiny yet fulfill at. Ooga Booga, Clarksville, Tennessee, former Texan of Clear Lake City. Hooray, hooray. Ooga Booga, Ooga Booga. Fuzzy 3202 AZ Gang. Christopher Hernandez, New York City. The truth always carries the ambiguity of the words used to express it. Righteousness and righteousity. Chris Olin, running late to the book club tonight. Not at all. Not at all. We're doing our introductory, you know, our introductory bits. Because we know, you know, people people turn up when they turn up. Uh, Rick Edelsey, hi. Sativa Skunk, House Harkonnen has controlled the planet Arrakis. Dexter Sands Gorsh, NYC. I was born in Manhattan. Robert Easley, hi from Chicago. And last time on Dune Book Club, House Atreides... Transfer to Arrakis with haters plotted against them. Plotted! Iweed says, what would you do for the spice? What would we not do for that spice? Lotus death maybe could be as possible. The user interface for reality changed everything for me. Really? That's wonderful, Lotus death That's wonderful to hear. Tweet me about that and I'll CC Scott Adams in it. He likes to see things like that. Kyla Sherrod, Flafla, what's cracking, baby? James Esparza, previously on Dun, Pain, Boxes, Royalty, and Women. Metaphor Junkie signing in from Rio Hondo, Texas. What up, Texas? Yes! Texas, land of epic ant mounds. Shout out to the ants underneath my lawn. 
there are many of them. I saw a thing last night. Me and Hercules were investigating ant mounds before bed, you know, because we've got a bunch in the lawn. And uh, this thing was saying that, like, each ant mound is just the tip of the sphere that is the network of, uh, of the ant, you know, uh, civilization beneath the ground. Each one of those mounds represents 250,000 ants. Like, what? I got a lot of them mounds, baby. I got, I'm like, damn, I thought this was my land. I was like, you know, what was it? What it was? What was it that old socialist said? This land is your land. This land is mine. No, it is not. It's the ants' land. You were wrong. You were wrong, socialist man. This is the ants' land. We just uh, walk atop it. We just keep it nice and shaky for them. This is not our land whatsoever. There's 250,000 ants beneath just this list bit. That bit over there's got another 250,000. That bit over there's, I mean, what? And that's just my lord. How many ants are in Dripping Springs, Texas by Joe? Yo! You know, I, n- I never fucked with ants, you know? And when I say fucked with, I mean, you know, tortured. I never done anything bad to no ant. I used to listen to Adam and the Ants, you know? And they had a song, and it went, Don't tread on an ant, he's done nothing to you. There may come a day when he's treading on you. Don't tread on an ant, you'll end up black and blue. Cut off his head, he'll come looking for you. And that scared me. I was scared. I was like two, you know? I was like, oh, what? Like a giant ant's gonna come back and claim revenge. Beat me up. You know? So I never, I never hurt no ant. But Hercules, he was eating some ants a couple years back. He was eating them. What are you doing? And I sang him that song. And then he also, he stopped, you know? And then he doesn't mess with ants no more. Yo! Alec Moran says, quite correctly, this land is not ours. The mycelium just allowed us to be here. That's right, baby. The mycelium was here before, and it will be here long after, I'm sure. Shouts out to that network of fungal tentacles. Beautiful fungal tentacles. Reaching down, 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 deep into the depths where uh, the, the dinosaur people live. Deep in the underneath. Shouts out to the dinosaur people all day long. Shouts out to the ants. And uh, shouts out to everybody locked in. I think we deserve an international high five by Jove. And then we can get in, get after this book club. I apologize for my dry hair. I ran out of conditioner and I did the, I washed it. I wash it like once a year. And it's all dry. By Joe. Anyway. Yankee lovers in Flafla. Shaz has a Flafla. Uga Booga says, I forgot to like. Fixed. Hooray. If anybody out there has forgotten to like, kindly like. Thank you very much. Yeah. We've had enough gunshot sounds for an audio book club, I think. Nope, never enough. Three, two, one.
Yeah, there you go. It feels like it works. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? That international high five working its way right up your left tip, baby. Come on. All right, let's have one more song from Dune Wave, and then we'll get into this audio book club. I just need to do. Uh, uh, I need to do some kettlebells, you know. So I've got to put out a record so I can do some kettlebells, basically. That, that's the reason. Because uh, if you don't do kettlebells, kettlebells don't get done. You d- you don't understand that, right? Oh, this is a good one. Let's speed it up a bit, though. It's a bit slow. There you go. Very nice. Deep in the human unconscious. Deep. Is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes hey. sense. Symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. That which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons. That which the true artist captures. In the way sand traits along a ridge. In the branch clusters of the creosote bush. Or the pattern of its leaves. We try to copy these patterns in our lives, in our society. Seeking the rhythms, the dances, the forms that comfort. There is in all things a pattern that is part of our universe. It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. That which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons. That which the true artist captures. Yet, it is impossible to see peril in the finding of ultimate perfection. Ultimate perfection. Ultimate perfection. Peril and the finding. It is clear that the ultimate pattern contains its own fixity. In such perfection, all things move towards death. There is in all things a pattern that is part of our universe. It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. That which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons. That which the true artist captures. The world is supported by four things. The learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, and the valor of the brave. Yet all of these things 
Humans are as nothing without a ruler who knows the art of ruling. Make that the science of your tradition. All life is in the service of life. There you go, baby. What a banger that is. That's One Step Beyond Logic from Dune Wave EP. Kira the Don, comic book girl 19, a.k.a. Danica XIX. XIX, that means 19. Whoa! See what you did there. All right, baby, without any further ado, let's get it cracking. Disc three, baby. Disc three. Jesuit system of sewing implant legends through the Missionaria Protectiva came to its full fruition. The wisdom of seeding the known universe with a prophecy pattern for the protection of the Bene Gesserit personnel has long been appreciated. But never have we seen a condition ut extremis with more ideal mating of person and preparation. The prophetic legends had taken on Arrakis even to the extent of adopted labels including Reverend Mother, Canto and Respondu, and most of the Sharia Panoplia Propheticus. And it is generally accepted now that the Lady Jessica's latent abilities were grossly underestimated. From Analysis, the Arakeen Crisis, by the Princess Irula. Private Circulation, Bene Gesserit File Number, AR. 8108-8587. All around the Lady Jessica, piled in corners of the Arakeen Great Hall, mounded in the open spaces, stood the packaged freight of their lives. Boxes, trunks, cartons, cases, some partly unpacked. She could hear the cargo handlers from the guild shuttle depositing another load in the entry. Jessica stood in the center of the hall, she moved in a slow turn, looking up and around at shadowed carvings, crannies, and deeply recessed windows. This giant anachronism of a room reminded her of the sisters' hall at her Bene Gesserit school. But at the school, the effect had been of warmth. Here, all was bleak stone. Some architect had reached far back into history for these buttressed walls and dark hangings, she thought. The arched ceiling stood two stories above her with great cross beams she felt sure had been shipped here to Arrakis across space at monstrous cost. No planet of this system grew trees to make such beams, unless the beams were imitation wood. She thought not. This had been the government mansion in the days of the old empire. Costs had been of less importance then. It had been before the Harkonnens and their new megalopolis of Karthag, a cheap and brassy place some 200 kilometers northeast across the broken land. Leto had been wise to choose this place for his seat of government. The name Arakin had a good sound, filled with tradition. 
and this was a smaller city, easier to sterilize and defend. Again there came the clatter of boxes being unloaded in the entry. Jessica sighed. Against a carton to her right stood the painting of the Duke's father. Wrapping twine hung from it like a frayed decoration. A piece of the twine was still clutched in Jessica's left hand. Beside the painting lay a black bull's head mounted on a polished board. The head was a dark island in a sea of wadded paper. Its plaque lay flat on the floor, and the bull's shiny muzzle pointed at the ceiling as though the beast were ready to bellow a challenge into this echoing room. Jessica wondered what compulsion had brought her to uncover those two things first, the head and the painting. She knew there was something symbolic in the action. Not since the day when the Duke's buyers had taken her from the school had she felt this frightened and unsure of herself. The head and the picture. They heightened her feelings of confusion. She shuddered, glanced at the slit windows high overhead. It was still early afternoon here, and in these latitudes the sky looked black and cold, so much darker than the warm blue of Caledon. A pang of homesickness throbbed through her. So far away, Caledon. Here we are. The voice was Duke Leto's. She whirled, saw him striding from the arched passage to the dining hall. His black working uniform with red armorial hawk crest at the breast looked dusty and rumpled. I thought you might have lost yourself in this hideous place, he said. It is a cold house, she said. She looked at his tallness, at the dark skin that made her think of olive groves and golden sun on blue waters. There was wood smoke in the gray of his eyes, but the face was predatory, thin, full of sharp angles and planes. A sudden fear of him tightened her breast. He had become such a savage, driving person since the decision to bow to the Emperor's command. The whole city feels cold, she said. It's a dirty, dusty little garrison town, he agreed. But we'll change that. He looked around the hall. These are public rooms for state occasions. I've just glanced at some of the family apartments in the South Wing. They're much nicer. He stepped closer, touched her arm admiring her stateliness. And again he wondered at her unknown ancestry. A renegade house, perhaps? Some black barred royalty? She looked more regal than the emperor's own blood. Under the pressure of his stare, she turned half away, exposing her profile, and he realized there was no single and precise thing that brought her beauty to focus. The face was oval under a cap of hair the color of polished bronze. Her eyes were set wide, as green and clear as the morning skies of Caledon. The nose was small, the mouth wide and generous. Her figure was good, but scant, tall and with its curves gone to slimness. He remembered that the lay sisters at the school had called her skinny, so his buyers had told him. But that description oversimplified. She had brought a regal beauty back into the Atreides line. He was glad that Paul favored her. Where's Paul? He asked. Someplace around the house taking his lessons with Yui. Probably in the south wing, he said. I thought I heard Yui's voice, but I couldn't take time to look. He glanced down at her, hesitating. I came here only to hang the key of Caledon Castle in the dining hall. 
she caught her breath, stopped the impulse to reach out to him. Hanging the key, there was finality in that action. But this was not the time or place for comforting. I saw our banner over the house as we came in, she said. He glanced at the painting of his father. Where were you going to hang that? Somewhere in here. No. The word rang flat and final, telling her she could use trickery to persuade, but open argument was useless. Still, she had to try, even if the gesture served only to remind herself that she would not trick him. My lord, she said, if you'd only... The answer remains no. I indulge you shamefully in most things, not in this. I've just come from the dining hall where there are... My lord, please, the choice is between your digestion and my ancestral dignity, my dear, he said. They will hang in the dining hall. She sighed. Yes, my lord. You may resume your custom of dining in your rooms whenever possible. I shall expect you at your proper position only on formal occasions. Thank you, my lord. And don't go all cold and formal on me. Be thankful that I never married you, my dear. Then it would be your duty to join me at table for every meal. She held her face immobile, nodded. Howard already has our own poison snooper over the dining table, he said. There's a portable in your rubble, in your rubble, in your rubble, in your rubble, in your rubble. You anticipated this disagreement, she said. My dear, I think also of your comfort. I've engaged servants, they're locals, but Howard has cleared them. They're Fremen, all. They'll do until our own people can be released from their other duties. Can anyone from this place be truly safe? Anyone who hates our colonies. You may even want to keep the head housekeeper, the Shadout Mapes. Shut out, Jessica said. A Fremen title? I'm told it means well-dipper, a meaning with rather important overtones here. She may not strike you as a servant type, although Hawat speaks highly of her on the basis of Duncan's report. They're convinced she wants to serve, specifically that she wants to serve you. Me? The Fremen have learned that you're Bene Gesserit, he said. There are legends here about the Bene Gesserit. Missionaria Protectiva, Jessica thought. No place escapes them. Does this mean Duncan was successful? She asked. Will the Fremen be our allies? There's nothing definite, he said. They wish to observe us for a while, Duncan believes. They did, however, promise to stop raiding our outlying villages during a truce period. That's a more important gain than it might seem. Howard tells me the Fremen were a deep thorn in the Harkonnen side, that the extent of their ravages was a carefully guarded secret. It wouldn't have helped for the Emperor to learn the ineffectiveness of the Harkonnen military. The Fremen housekeepers. Jessica mused, returning to the subject of the shadowed mapes. She'll have the all-blue eyes. Don't let the appearance of these people deceive you, he said. There's a deep strength and healthy vitality in them. I think they'll be everything we need. It's a dangerous gamble, she said. Let's not go into that again, he said. She forced a smile. We are committed, no doubt of that. She went through the quick regimen of calmness, the two deep breaths, the ritual thought, then... When I assign rooms, is there anything special I should reserve for you? You must teach me someday how you do that, he said. The way you thrust your worries aside and turn to practical matters, it must be a Bene Gesserit thing. It's a female thing, 
she said. He smiled. Well, assignment of rooms. Make certain I have large office space next to my sleeping quarters. There'll be more paperwork here than on Caladan. A guard room, of course. That should cover it. Don't worry about security of the house. Howard's men have been over it in depth. I'm sure they have. He glanced at his wristwatch. And you might see that all our timepieces are adjusted for Arakeen Local. I've assigned a tech to take care of it. He'll be along presently. He brushed a strand of her hair back from her forehead. I must return to the landing field now. The second shuttle's due any minute with my staff reserves. Couldn't Howard meet them, my lord? You look so tired. The good Thufer is even busier than I am. You know this planet's infested with Harkonnen intrigues. Besides, I must try persuading some of the trained spice hunters against Legum. I have the option, you know, with the change of fief. And this planetologist, the Emperor and the Landstrad installed as judge of the change, cannot be bought. He's allowing the opt. About 800 trained hands expect to go out on the spice shuttle, and there's a guild cargo ship standing by. My lord, she broke off, hesitating. Yes? He will not be persuaded against trying to make this planet secure for us, she thought, and I cannot use my tricks on him. At what time will you be expecting dinner? she asked. That's not what she was going to say, he thought. Ah, my Jessica, would that we were somewhere else, anywhere away from this terrible place, alone, the two of us, without a care. I'll eat in the officer's mess at the field, he said. Don't expect me until very late, and uh, I'll be sending a guard car for Paul. I want him to attend our strategy conference. He cleared his throat as though to say something else, then, without warning, turned and strode out, headed for the entry where she could hear more boxes being deposited. His voice sounded once from there, commanding and disdainful, the way he always spoke to servants when he was in a hurry. The Lady Jessica's in the Great Hall. Join her there immediately. The outer door slammed. Jessica turned away, faced the painting of Leto's father. It had been done by the famed artist, Albi, during the old Duke's middle years. He was portrayed in matador costume with a magenta cape flung over his left arm. The face looked young, hardly older than Leto's now, and with the same hawk features, the same grey stare. She clenched her fists at her sides, glared at the painting. Damn you. Damn you. Damn you. She whispered. What are your orders, noble-born? It was a woman's voice, thin and stringy. Jessica whirled, stared down at a knobby, grey-haired woman in a shapeless sack dress of bondsman brown. The woman looked as wrinkled and desiccated as any member of the mob that had greeted them along the way from the landing field that morning. Every native she had seen on this planet, Jessica thought, looked prune-dry and undernourished. Yet Leto had said they were strong and vital. And there were the eyes, of course, that wash of deepest, darkest blue without any white, secretive, mysterious. Jessica forced herself not to stare. The woman gave a stiff-necked nod, said, I am called the Shadout Mapes, noble-born. What are your orders? You may refer to me as my lady, Jessica said. I'm not noble-born. I'm the bound concubine of the Duke Leto. 
Again that strange nod, and the woman peered upward at Jessica with a sly questioning. There's a wife, then? There is not, nor has there ever been. I am the Duke's only companion, the mother of his heir-designate. Even as she spoke, Jessica laughed inwardly at the pride behind her words. What was it St. Augustine said? She asked herself. The mind commands the body and it obeys. The mind orders itself and meets resistance. Yes, I am meeting more resistance lately. I could use a quiet retreat by myself. A weird cry sounded from the road outside the house. It was repeated. Su, su, suk! Su, su, suk! Then, ikute, ikute, and again, su, su, suk. What is that? Jessica asked. I heard it several times as we drove through the streets this morning. Only a water cellar, my lady. But you've no need to interest yourself in such as they. The cistern here holds 50,000 liters, and it's always kept full. She glanced down at her dress. Why, you know, my lady, I don't even have to wear my still suit here. She cackled. And me not even dead? Jessica hesitated, wanting to question this Fremen woman, needing data to guide her. But bringing order of the confusion in the castle was more imperative. Still, she found the thought unsettling that water was a major mark of wealth. My husband told me of your title, Shadout, Jessica said. I recognized the word. It's a very ancient word. You know the ancient tongues, then? Mapes asked, and she waited with an odd intensity. Tongues are the Bene Gesserit's first learning, Jessica said. I know the Botani Jib, in the Chakobsa, all the hunting languages. Mapes nodded. Just as the legend says. And Jessica wondered, why do I play out this sham? But the Bene Gesserit ways were devious and compelling. I know the dark things and the ways of the Great Mother, Jessica said. She read the more obvious signs in Mape's actions and appearance, the petty betrayals. Missus Prezia, she said in the Chakobsa tongue. Andraltre pera, trada sik buskakri misekes prakri. Mapes took a backward step, appeared poised to flee. I know many things. Jessica said, I know that you have borne children, that you have lost loved ones, that you have hidden in fear, and that you have done violence and will yet do more violence. I know many things. In a low voice, Mapes said, I meant no offense, my lady. You speak of the legend and seek answers, Jessica said. Beware the answers you may find. I know you came prepared for violence with a weapon in your bodice. My lady, I... There's a remote possibility you could draw my life's blood, Jessica said. But in so doing, you'd bring down more ruin than your wildest fears could imagine. There are worse things than dying, you know, even for an entire people. My lady, Mapes pleaded. She appeared about to fall to her knees. The weapon was sent as a gift to you. Should you prove to be the one... And as the means of my death, should I prove otherwise? Jessica said. She waited in the seeming relaxation that made the Bene Gesserit trained so terrifying in combat. Now we see which way the decision tips, she thought. 
Slowly, Mapes reached into the neck of her dress, brought out a dark sheath. The black handle with deep finger ridges protruded from it. She took sheath in one hand and handle in the other, withdrew a milk-white blade, held it up. The blade seemed to shine and glitter with a light of its own. It was double-edged like a kinjal, and the blade was perhaps twenty centimeters long. Do you know this, my lady? Mapes asked. It could only be one thing Jessica knew. The fabled Chris knife of Arrakis. The blade that had never been taken off the planet and was known only by rumor and wild gossip. It's a Chris knife, she said. Say it not lightly, Mapes said. Do you know its meaning? And Jessica thought. There was an edge to that question. Here's the reason this Fremen had taken service with me, to ask that one question. My answer could precipitate violence or... What? She seeks an answer from me, the meaning of a knife. She's called the Shadout in the Chakopsa tongue. Knife, that's Deathmaker in Chakopsa. She's getting restive. I must answer now. Delay is as dangerous as the wrong answer. Jessica said... It's a maker. Hey! Mapes wailed. It was a sound of both grief and elation. She trembled so hard the knife blade sent glittering shards of reflection shooting around the room. Jessica waited, poised. She had intended to say the knife was a maker of death and then add the ancient word, but every sense warned her now all the deep training of alertness that exposed meaning in the most casual muscle twitch. The key word was maker. Maker? Maker. Still, Mapes held the knife as though ready to use it. Jessica said, Did you think that I, knowing the mysteries of the Great Mother, would not know the Maker? Mapes lowered the knife. My lady, when one has lived with prophecy for so long, the moment of revelation is a shock. Jessica thought about the prophecy. The Sharia and all the Panoplia Propheticus. A Bene Gesserit of the Missionaria Protectiva dropped here long centuries ago. Long dead, no doubt, but her purpose accomplished. The protective legends implanted in these people against the day of a Bene Gesserit's need. Well, that day had come. Mates returned, knife to sheath, said, This is an unfixed blade, my lady. Keep it near you. More than a week away from flesh and it begins to disintegrate. It's yours. A tooth of Shai Hulud for as long as you live. Jessica reached out her right hand, risked a gamble. Mapes, you've sheathed that blade unblooded. With a gasp, Mapes dropped the sheathed knife into Jessica's hand, tore open the brown bodice, wailing, Take the water of my life! Jessica withdrew the blade from its sheath, how it glittered. She directed the point toward Mapes, saw a fear greater than death panic come over the woman. Poison in the point? Jessica wondered. She tipped up the point, drew a delicate scratch with the blade's edge above Mapes' left breast. There was a thick welling of blood that stopped almost immediately. Ultra-fast coagulation, Jessica thought. A moisture-conserving mutation? 
she sheathed the blade, said, Button your dress, Mapes. Mapes obeyed, trembling. The eyes without whites stared at Jessica. You are ours, she muttered. You are the one. There came another sound of unloading in the entry. Swiftly, Mapes grabbed the sheathed knife, concealed it in Jessica's bodice. Who sees that knife must be cleansed or slain, she snarled. You know that, my lady. I know it now, Jessica thought. The cargo handlers left without intruding on the great hall. Mapes composed herself, said, The uncleansed who have seen a Chris knife may not leave Arrakis alive. Never forget that, my lady. You've been entrusted with a Chris knife. She took a deep breath. Now the thing must take its course. It cannot be hurried. She glanced at the stacked boxes and piled goods around them. And there's work aplenty to while the time for us here. Jessica hesitated. The thing must take its course. That was a specific catchphrase from the Missionaria Protectiva's stock of incantations. The coming of the Reverend Mother to free you. But I'm not a Reverend Mother, Jessica thought. And then, Great Mother, they planted that one here. This must be a hideous place. In matter-of-fact tones, Mapes said, What will you be wanting me to do first, my lady? Instinct warned Jessica to match that casual tone. She said, The painting of the old duke over there, it must be hung on one side of the dining hall. The bull's head must go on the wall opposite the painting. Mapes crossed to the bull's head. What a great beast it must have been to carry such a head, she said. She stooped. I'll have to be cleaning this first, won't I, my lady? No. But there's dirt caked on its horns. That's not dirt, Mapes. That's the blood of our duke's father. Those horns were sprayed with a transparent fixative within hours after this beast killed the old duke. Mapes stood up. Ah, now, she said. It's just blood, Jessica said. Old blood at that. Get some help hanging these now. The beastly things are heavy. Did you think the blood bothered me? Mapes asked. I'm of the desert and I've seen blood aplenty. I see that you have, Jessica said. And some of it my own, Mapes said. Morn, you drew with your puny scratch. You'd rather I'd cut deeper? Ah, no, the body's water is scant enough without gushing a wasteful lot of it into the air. You did the thing right. And Jessica, noting the words and manner, caught the deeper implications in the phrase, the body's water. Again she felt a sense of oppression at the importance of water on Arrakis. On which side of the dining hall shall I hang which one of these pretties, my lady? Mapes asked. Ever the practical one, this Mapes, Jessica thought. She said, use your own judgment, Mapes. It makes no real difference. As you say, my lady. Mapes stooped, began clearing wrappings and twine from the head. Killed an old duke, did you? She crooned. Shall I summon a handler to help you? Jessica asked. I'll manage, my lady. Yes, she'll manage, Jessica thought. There's that about this Fremen creature, the drive to manage. 
Jessica felt the cold sheath of the Chris knife beneath her bodice, thought of the long chain of Bene Gesserit's scheming that had forged another link here. Because of that scheming, she had survived a deadly crisis. It cannot be hurried, Mapes had said. Yet there was a tempo of headlong rushing to this place that filled Jessica with foreboding. And not all the preparations of the Missionaria Protectiva, nor Howard's suspicious inspection of this castellated pile of rocks, could dispel the feeling. When you've finished hanging those, start unpacking the boxes, Jessica said. One of the cargo men at the entry has all the keys and knows where things should go. Get the keys and the list from him. If there are any questions, I'll be in the south wing. As you will, my lady, Mapes said. Jessica turned away, thinking, how it may have passed this residency as safe, but there's something wrong about the place. I can feel it. An urgent need to see her son gripped Jessica. She began walking toward the arched doorway that led into the passage to the dining hall and the family wings. Faster and faster she walked, until she was almost running. Behind her, Mapes paused in clearing the wrappings from the bull's head, looked at the retreating back. She's the one, all right, she muttered. Poor thing. Yui, 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 goes the refrain. A million deaths were not enough for Yui. From A Child's History of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. The door stood ajar, and Jessica stepped through it into a room with yellow walls. To her left stretched a low settee of black hide and two empty bookcases, a hanging water flask with dust on its bulging sides. To her right, bracketing another door, stood more empty bookcases, a desk from Caladan, and three chairs. At the windows directly ahead of her stood Dr. Huey, his back to her, his attention fixed upon the outside world. Jessica took another silent step into the room. She saw that Yui's coat was wrinkled, a white smudge near the left elbow as though he had leaned against chalk. He looked from behind like a fleshless stick figure in over-large black clothing, a caricature poised for stringy movement at the direction of a puppet master. Only the squarish block of head with long ebony hair caught in its silver sook school ring at the shoulder seemed alive, turning slightly to follow some movement outside. Again she glanced around the room, seeing no sign of her son, but the closed door on her right, she knew, led into a small bedroom for which Paul had expressed a liking. Good afternoon, Dr. Lee, she said. Where's Paul? He nodded as though to something out the window, spoke in an absent manner without turning. Your son grew tired, Jessica. I sent him into the next room to rest. Abruptly he stiffened, whirled with moustache flopping over his purpled lips. Forgive me, my lady, my thoughts were far away. I did not mean to be familiar. She smiled, held out her right hand. For a moment she was afraid he might kneel. Wellington, please. To use your name like that, I... We've known each other six years, she said. It's long past time formalities should have been dropped between us in private. Yui ventured a thin smile, thinking, I believe it has worked. 
Now she'll think anything unusual in my manner is due to embarrassment. She'll not look for deeper reasons when she believes she already knows the answer. I'm afraid I was wool-gathering, he said. Whenever I feel especially sorry for you, I'm afraid I think of you as, well, Jessica. Sorry for me? Whatever for? Yui shrugged. Long ago he had realized Jessica was not gifted with the full truth-say as his wanna had been. Still, he always used the truth with Jessica whenever possible. It was safest. You've seen this place, my... Jessica? He stumbled over the name, plunged ahead. So barren after Caladan, and the people, those townswomen we passed on the way here, wailing beneath their veils, the way they looked at us. She folded her arms across her breast, hugging herself, feeling the Chris knife there, a blade ground from a sandworm's tooth, if the reports were right. It's just that we're strange to them. Different people, different customs. They've known only the Harkonnens. She looked past him out the windows. What were you staring at out there? He turned back to the window. The people. Jessica crossed to his side, looked to the left toward the front of the house where Yui's attention was focused. A line of twenty palm trees grew there. The ground beneath them swept clean, barren. A screen fence separated them from the road upon which robed people were passing. Jessica detected a faint shimmering in the air between her and the people, a house shield, and went on to study the passing throng, wondering why Yue found them so absorbing. The pattern emerged, and she put a hand to her cheek. The way the passing people looked at the palm trees. She saw envy, some hate, even a sense of hope. Each person raked those trees with a fixity of expression. Do you know what they're thinking? Yui asked. You profess to read minds? She asked. Those minds, he said. They look at those trees and they think there are one hundred of us. That's what they think. She turned a puzzled frown on him. Why? Those are date palms, he said. One date palm requires forty liters of water a day. A man requires but eight liters. A palm then equals five men. There are twenty palms out there. One hundred men. But some of those people look at the trees hopefully. They but hope some dates will fall. Except it's the wrong season. We look at this place with too critical an eye, she said. There's hope as well as danger here. The spice could make us rich. With a fat treasury, we can make this world into whatever we wish. And she laughed silently at herself. Who am I trying to convince? The laugh broke through her restraints, emerging brittle, without humor. But you can't buy security, she said. Yui turned away to hide his face from her. If only it were possible to hate these people instead of love them. In her manner, in many ways, Jessica was like his wanna. Yet that thought carried its own rigors, hardening him to his purpose. The ways of the Harkonnen cruelty were devious. Wanna might not be dead. He had to be certain. Do not worry for us, Wellington, Jessica said. The problem's ours, not yours. 
She thinks I worry for her. He blinked back tears. And I do, of course, but I must stand before that black baron with his deed accomplished and take my one chance to strike him where he is weakest in his gloating moment. He sighed. Would it disturb Paul if I looked in on him? She asked. Not at all, I gave him a sedative. He's taking the change well? She asked. Except for getting a bit overtired, he's excited, but what fifteen-year-old wouldn't be under these circumstances? He crossed to the door, opened it. He's in here. Jessica followed, peered into a shadowy room. Paul lay on a narrow cot, one arm beneath a light cover, the other thrown back over his head. Slatted blinds at a window beside the bed wove a loom of shadows across face and blanket. Jessica stared at her son, seeing the oval shape of face so like her own. But the hair was the Duke's, coal-colored and tousled. Long lashes concealed the lime-toned eyes. Jessica smiled, feeling her fears retreat. She was suddenly caught by the idea of genetic traces in her son's features. Her lines in eyes and facial outline, but sharp touches of the father peering through that outline like maturity emerging from childhood. She thought of the boy's features as an exquisite distillation out of random patterns, endless cues of happenstance meeting at this nexus. The thought made her want to kneel beside the bed and take her son in her arms, but she was inhibited by Yui's presence. She stepped back, closed the door softly. Yui had returned to the window, unable to bear watching the way Jessica stared at her son. Why did Wana never give me children? He asked himself. I know as a doctor there was no physical reason against it. Was there some Bene Gesserit reason? Was she perhaps instructed to serve a different purpose? What could it have been? She loved me, certainly. For the first time he was caught up in the thought that he might be part of a pattern more involuted and complicated than his mind could grasp. Jessica stopped beside him and said, What delicious abandon in the sleep of a child. He spoke mechanically. If only adults could relax like that. Yes. Where do we lose it? He murmured. She glanced at him catching the odd tone, but her mind was still on Paul. Thinking of the new rigors in his training here, thinking of the differences in his life now, so very different from the life they once had planned for him. We do indeed lose something, she said. She glanced out to the right at a slope humped with a wind-troubled gray-green of bushes, dusty leaves and dry claw branches. The too dark sky hung over the slope like a blot, and the milky light of the arakeen sun gave the scene a silver cast, light like the chris knife concealed in her bodice. The sky's so dark, she said. That's partly the lack of moisture, he said. Water, she snapped. Everywhere you turn here, you're involved with the lack of water. It's the precious mystery of Arrakis he said. Why is there so little of it? There's volcanic rock here. There are a dozen power sources I could name. There's polar ice. 
They say you can't drill in the desert. Storms and sand tides destroy equipment faster than it can be installed if the worms don't get you first. They've never found water traces there anyway. But the mystery, Wellington, the real mystery, is the wells that have been drilled up here in the sinks and basins. Have you read about those? First a trickle, then nothing, he said. But Wellington, that's the mystery. The water was there. It dries up, and never again is there water. Yet another hole nearby produces the same result, a trickle that stops. Has no one ever been curious about this? It is curious, he said. You suspect some living agency? Wouldn't that have shown in core samples? What would have shown? Alien plant matter or animal? Who could recognize it? She turned back to the slope. The water is stopped. Something plugs it. That's my suspicion. Perhaps the reasons known, he said. The Hakonans sealed off many sources of information about Arrakis. Perhaps there was reason to suppress this? What reason, she asked. And then there's the atmospheric moisture. Little enough of it, certainly, but there's some. It's the major source of water here, caught in wind traps and precipitators. Where does that come from? The polar caps? Cold air takes up little moisture, Wellington. There are things here behind the Harkonnen Vale that bear close investigation, and not all of those things are directly involved with the spice. We are indeed behind the Harkonnen Vale, he said. Perhaps we'll... He broke off, noting the sudden intense way she was looking at him. Is something wrong? The way you say Harkonnen, she said. Even my duke's voice doesn't carry that weight of venom when he uses the hated name. I didn't know you had personal reasons to hate them, Wellington. Great mother, he thought. I've aroused her suspicions. Now I must use every trick my wana taught me. There's only one solution. Tell the truth as far as I can. He said, You didn't know that my wife, my wana... He shrugged, unable to speak past a sudden constriction in his throat. Then, they... The words wouldn't come out. He felt panic, closed his eyes tightly, experiencing the agony in his chest and little else until a hand touched his arm gently. Forgive me, Jessica said. I didn't mean to open an old wound. And she thought, those animals. His wife was the Jessica. The signs are all over him. And it's obvious the Harkonnens killed her. Here's another poor victim, bound to the Atreides by a cherim of hate. I am sorry, he said. I'm unable to talk about it. He opened his eyes, giving himself up to the internal awareness of grief. That, at least, was truth. Jessica studied him, seeing the up-angled cheeks the dark sequins of almond eyes, the butter complexion and stringy moustache hanging like a curved frame around purpled lips and narrow chin. The creases of his cheeks and forehead, she saw, were as much lines of sorrow as of age. A deep affection for him came over her. Wellington, I'm sorry we brought you into this dangerous place, she said. I came willingly, he said. 
and that too was true. But this whole planet's a Harkonnen trap, you must know that. It will take more than a trap to catch the Duke Leto, he said. And that too was true. Perhaps I should be more confident of him, she said. He is a brilliant tactician. We've been uprooted, he said. That's why we're uneasy. And how easy it is to kill the uprooted plant, she said. Especially when you put it down in hostile soil. Are we certain the soil's hostile? There were water riots when it was learned how many people the Duke was adding to the population, she said. They stopped only when the people learned we were installing new wind traps and condensers to take care of the load. There is only so much water to support human life here, he said. The people know if more come to drink a limited amount of water, the price goes up and the very poor die. But the Duke has solved this. It doesn't follow that the riots mean permanent hostility toward him. And guards, she said, guards everywhere, and shields. You see the blurring of them everywhere you look. We didn't live this way on Caladan. Give this planet a chance, he said. But Jessica continued to stare hard-eyed out the window. I can smell death in this place, she said. Howat sent advance agents in here by the battalion. Those guards outside are his men. The cargo handlers are his men. There have been unexplained withdrawals of large sums from the treasury. The amounts mean only one thing, bribes in high places. She shook her head. Where Thufir Howat goes, death and deceit follow. You malign him. Malign? I praise him. Death and deceit are our only hopes now. I just don't fool myself about Thufir's methods. You should keep busy, he said. Give yourself no time for such morbid busy. What is it that takes most of my time, Wellington? I am the Duke's secretary, so busy that each day I learn new things to fear, things even he doesn't suspect I know. She compressed her lips, spoke thinly. Sometimes I wonder how much my Bene Gesserit business training figured in his choice of me. What do you mean? He found himself caught by the cynical tone, the bitterness that he had never seen her expose. Don't you think, Wellington, she asked, that a secretary bound to one by love is so much safer? That is not a worthy thought, Jessica. The rebuke came naturally to his lips. There was no doubt how the Duke felt about his concubine. One had only to watch him as he followed her with his eyes. She sighed. You're right. It's not worthy. Again she hugged herself, pressing the sheathed Chris knife against her flesh and thinking of the unfinished business it represented. There'll be much bloodshed soon, she said. The Harkonnens won't rest until they're dead or my duke destroyed. The Baron cannot forget that Leto is a cousin of the royal blood, no matter what the distance. While the Harkonnen titles came out of the Chom pocketbook. But the poison in him, deep in his mind, is the knowledge that an Atreides had a Harkonnen banished for cowardice after the Battle of Corinth. The old feud, Yui muttered and for a moment he felt an acid touch of hate. 
The old feud had trapped him in its web, killed his wana, or worse, left her for Harkonnen tortures until her husband did their bidding. The old feud had trapped him, and these people were part of that poisonous thing. The irony was that such deadliness should come to flower here on Arrakis, the one source in the universe of Melange, the prolonger of life, the giver of health. What are you thinking? she asked. I am thinking that the spice brings 620,000 solaris, the decagram, on the open market right now. That is wealth to buy many things. Does greed touch even you, Wellington? Not greed? What then? He shrugged. Futility. He glanced at her. Can you remember your first taste of spice? It tasted like cinnamon. But never twice the same, he said. It's like life. It presents a different face each time you take it. Some hold that the spice produces a learned flavor reaction. The body, learning a thing is good for it, interprets the flavor as pleasurable, slightly euphoric, and like life, never to be truly synthesized. I think it would have been wiser for us to go renegade, to take ourselves beyond the imperial reach, she said. He saw that she hadn't been listening to him, focused on her words, wondering, Yes, why didn't she make him do this? She could make him do virtually anything. He spoke quickly because here was truth and a change of subject. Would you think it bold of me, Jessica, if I asked a personal question? She pressed against the window ledge in an unexplainable pang of disquiet. Of course not. You're my friend. Why haven't you made the Duke marry you? She whirled, head up, glaring. Made him marry me? But I shouldn't have asked, he said. No, she shrugged. There's good political reason. As long as my Duke remains unmarried, some of the great houses can still hope for alliance. And, she sighed, motivating people, forcing them to your will, gives you a cynical attitude toward humanity. It degrades everything it touches. If I made him do this, then it would not be his doing. It's a thing my wana might have said, he murmured. And this too was truth. He put a hand to his mouth, swallowing convulsively. He had never been closer to speaking out, confessing his secret wrong. Jessica spoke, shattering the moment. Besides, Wellington, the Duke is really two men. One of them I love very much. He's charming, witty, considerate, tender, everything a woman could desire. But the other man is cold, callous, demanding, selfish, as harsh and cruel as a winter wind. That's the man shaped by the father. Her face contorted. If only that old man had died when my duke was born. In the silence that came between them, a breeze from a ventilator could be heard fingering the blinds. Presently she took a deep breath and said, Leto's right. These rooms are nicer than the ones in the other sections of the house. She turned, sweeping the room with her gaze. If you'll excuse me, Wellington, I want another look through this wing before I assign quarters. 
He nodded. Of course. And he thought, if only there were some way not to do this thing that I must do. Jessica dropped her arms, crossed to the hall door and stood there a moment, hesitating, then let herself out. All the time we talked, he was hiding something. Holding something back, she thought. To save my feelings, no doubt. He's a good man. Again she hesitated, almost turned back to confront Yui and drag the hidden thing from him. But that would only shame him, frighten him to learn he's so easily read. I should place more trust in my friends. Many have marked the speed with which Muad'Dib learned the necessities of Arrakis. The Bene Gesserit, of course, know the basis of this speed. For the others, we can say that Muad'Dib learned rapidly because his first training was in how to learn. And the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It is shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn, and how many more believe learning to be difficult. Muad'Dib knew that every experience carries its lesson. From the Humanity of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Paul lay on the bed, feigning sleep. It had been easy to palm Dr. Yui's sleeping tablet to pretend to swallow it. Paul suppressed a laugh. Even his mother had believed him asleep. He had wanted to jump up and ask her permission to go exploring the house, but had realized she wouldn't approve. Things were too unsettled yet. No, this way was best. If I slip out without asking, I haven't disobeyed orders, and I will stay in the house where it's safe. He heard his mother and Yui talking in the other room. Their words were indistinct, something about the spice, the Harkonnens. The conversation rose and fell. Paul's attention went to the carved headboard of his bed, a false headboard attached to the wall and concealing the controls for this room's functions. A leaping fish had been shaped on the wood with thick brown waves beneath it. He knew if he pushed the fish's one visible eye, that would turn on the room's suspenser lamps. One of the waves, when twisted, controlled ventilation. Another changed the temperature. Quietly, Paul sat up in bed. A tall bookcase stood against the wall to his lift. It could be swung aside to reveal a closet with drawers along one side. The handle on the door into the hall was patterned on an ornithopter thrust bar. It was as though the room had been designed to entice him. The room and this planet. He thought of the film book Yui had shown him. Arrakis, His Imperial Majesty's Desert Botanical Testing Station. It was an old film book from before discovery of the spice. Names flitted through Paul's mind, each with its picture imprinted by the book's mnemonic pulse. Saguaro, burrow bush, date palm, sand verbena, evening primrose, barrel cactus, incense bush, smoke tree, creosote bush, kit fox, desert hawk, kangaroo mouse. Names and pictures, names and pictures from man's tyrannic past and many to be found now nowhere else in the universe except here on Arrakis. So many new things to learn about, the spice and the sandworms. A door closed in the other room. Paul heard his mother's footsteps retreating down the hall. 
Dr. Yui, he knew, would find something to read and remain in the other room. Now was the moment to go exploring. Paul slipped out of the bed, headed for the bookcase door that opened into the closet. He stopped at a sound behind him, turned. The carved headboard of the bed was folding down onto the spot where he had been sleeping. Paul froze, and immobility saved his life. From behind the headboard slipped a tiny hunter-seeker, no more than five centimeters long. Paul recognized it at once, a common assassination weapon that every child of royal blood learned about at an early age. It was a ravening sliver of metal guided by some nearby hand and eye. It could burrow into moving flesh and chew its way up nerve channels to the nearest vital organ. The seeker lifted, swung sideways across the room and back. Through Paul's mind flashed the related knowledge, the hunter-seeker limitations. Its compressed suspensor field distorted the room to reflect his target. The operator would be relying on motion anything that moved. A shield could slow a hunter, give time to destroy it, but Paul had put aside his shield on the bed. Lay's guns would knock them down, but Lay's guns were expensive and notoriously cranky of maintenance. And there was always the peril of explosive pyrotechnics if the laser beam intersected a hot shield. The Atreides relied on their body shields and their wits. Now, Paul held himself in near catatonic immobility knowing he had only his wits to meet this threat. The hunter-seeker lifted another half-meter. It rippled through the slatted light from the window blinds, back and forth, quartering the room. I must try to grab it, he thought. The suspensor field will make it slippery on the bottom. I must grip tightly. The thing dropped a half-meter, quartered to the left, circled back around the bed. A faint humming could be heard from it. Who is operating that thing? Paul wondered. It has to be someone near. I could shout for Yui, but it would take him the instant the door opened. The hall door behind Paul creaked. A rap sounded there. The door opened. The hunter-seeker arrowed past his head toward the motion. Paul's right hand shot out and down, gripping the deadly thing. It hummed and twisted in his hand, but his muscles were locked on it in desperation. With a violent turn and thrust, he slammed the thing's nose against the metal doorplate. He felt the crunch of it as the nose eye smashed, and the seeker went dead in his hand. Still he held it, to be certain. Paul's eyes came up, met the open stare of total blue from the shut-out mapes. Your father has sent for you, she said. There are men in the hall to escort you. Paul nodded, his eyes and awareness focusing on this odd woman in a sack-like dress of bondsman brown. She was looking now at the thing clutched in his hand. I've heard of such like, she said. It would have killed me, not so? He had to swallow before he could speak. I was its target. But it was coming for me, because you were moving. And I wondered, who is this creature? Then you saved my life, she said. I saved both our lives. Seems like you could have let it have me and made your own escape, she said. Who are you, he asked. 
the shout-out mapes, housekeeper. How did you know where to find me? Your mother told me. I met her at the stairs to the weirding room down the hall. She pointed to her right. Your father's men are still waiting. Those will be Howard's men, he thought. We must find the operator of this thing. Go to my father's men, he said. Tell them I've caught a hunter-seeker in the house, and they're to spread out and find the operator. Tell them to seal off the house and its grounds immediately. They'll know how to go about it. The operator's sure to be a stranger among us. And he wondered, could it be this creature? But he knew it wasn't. The seeker had been under control when she entered. Before I do your bidding, manling, Mape said, I must cleanse the way between us. You've put a water burden on me that I'm not sure I care to support. But we Fremen pay our debts, be they black debts or white debts. And it's known to us that you've a traitor in your midst. Who it is we cannot say, but we're certain sure of it. Mayhap there's the hand guided that flesh cutter. Paul absorbed this in silence. A traitor. Before he could speak, the odd woman whirled away and ran back toward the entry. He thought to call her back, but there was an air about her that told him she would resent it. She'd told him what she knew, and now she was going to do his bidding. The house would be swarming with Howat's men in a minute. His mind went to other parts of that strange conversation. Weirding room... He looked to his left where she had pointed. We Fremen. So that was a Fremen. He paused for the mnemonic blink that would store the pattern of her face in his memory. Prune-wrinkled features, darkly browned, blue-on-blue eyes without any white in them. He attached the label. The Shadout Mapes. Still gripping the shattered seeker, Paul turned back into his room, scooped up his shield belt from the bed with his left hand, swung it around his waist and buckled it as he ran back out and down the hall to the left. She'd said his mother was someplace down here, stairs, a weirding room. What had the Lady Jessica to sustain her in her time of trial? Think you carefully on this Bene Gesserit proverb, and perhaps you will see. Any road followed precisely to its end leads precisely nowhere. Climb the mountain just a little bit to test that it is a mountain. From the top of the mountain, you cannot see the mountain. From Muad'Dib's Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. At the end of the south wing, Jessica found a metal stair spiraling up to an oval door. She glanced back down the hall, again up at the door. Oval? she wondered. What an odd shape for a door in a house. Through the windows beneath the spiral stair, she could see the great white sun of Arrakis moving on toward evening. Long shadows stabbed down the hall. She returned her attention to the stairs. Harsh side lighting picked out bits of dried earth on the open metalwork of the steps. Jessica put a hand on the rail, began to climb. The rail felt cold under her sliding palm. She stopped at the door, saw it had no handle, but there was a faint depression on the surface of it where a handle should have been. Surely not a palm lock, she told herself. 
A palm lock must be keyed to one individual's hand shape and palm lines. But it looked like a palm lock. And there were ways to open any palm lock, as she had learned at school. Jessica glanced back to make certain she was unobserved, placed her palm against the depression in the door. The most gentle of pressures to distort the lines, a turn of the wrist, another turn, a sliding twist of the palm across the surface. She felt the click. But there were hurrying footsteps in the hall beneath her. Jessica lifted her hand from the door, turned, saw Mapes come to the foot of the stairs. There are men in the great hall say they've been sent by the Duke to get young Master Paul, Mapes said. They've the ducal signet and the guard has identified them. She glanced at the door, back to Jessica. A cautious one, this Mapes, Jessica thought. That's a good sign. He's in the fifth room from this end of the hall, the small bedroom, Jessica said. If you have trouble waking him, call on Dr. Yui in the next room. Paul may require a wake shot. Again, Mapes cast a piercing stare at the oval door, and Jessica thought she detected loathing in the expression. Before Jessica could ask about the door and what it concealed, Mapes had turned away, hurrying back down the hall. How what certified this place, Jessica thought. There can't be anything too terrible in here. She pushed the door. It swung inward onto a small room with another oval door opposite. The other door had a wheel handle. An airlock, Jessica thought. She glanced down, saw a door prop fallen to the floor of the little room. The prop carried Howard's personal mark. The door was left propped open, she thought. Someone probably knocked the prop down accidentally, not realizing the outer door would close on a palm lock. She stepped over the lip into the little room. Why an airlock in a house? she asked herself. And she thought suddenly of exotic creatures sealed off in special climates. Special climate? That would make sense on Arrakis, where even the driest of off-planet growing things had to be irrigated. The door behind her began swinging closed. She caught it and propped it open securely with the stick Howard had left. Again, she faced the wheel-locked inner door, seeing now a faint inscription etched in the metal above the handle. She recognized Gallic words. Read, O man... Here is a lovely portion of God's creation. Then stand before it and learn to love the perfection of thy supreme friend. Jessica put her weight on the wheel. It turned left and the inner door opened. A gentle draft feathered her cheek, stirred her hair. She felt change in the air, a richer taste. She swung the door wide, looked through into massed greenery, with yellow sunlight pouring across it. A yellow sun? She asked herself. Then, filter glass. She stepped over the sill, and the door swung closed behind. A wet planet conservatory, she breathed. Potted plants and low-pruned trees stood all about. She recognized a mimosa, 
a flowering quince, a sandaji, green-blossomed plenicenta, green and white-striped acarso, roses, even roses. She bent to breathe the fragrance of a giant pink blossom, straightened to peer around the room. Rhythmic noise invaded her senses. She parted a jungle overlapping of leaves, looked through to the center of the room. A low fountain stood there, small with fluted lips. The rhythmic noise was a peeling, spooling arc of water falling thud a gallop onto the metal bowl. Jessica sent herself through the quick sense-clearing regimen, began a methodical inspection of the room's perimeter. It appeared to be about ten meters square. From its placement above the end of the hall and from subtle differences in construction, she guessed it had been added onto the roof of this wing long after the original building's completion. She stopped at the south limits of the room in front of the wide reach of filter glass, stared around. Every available space in the room was crowded with exotic wet climate plants. Something rustled in the greenery. She tensed, then glimpsed a simple clock-set servak with pipe and hose arms. An arm lifted, sent out a fine spray of dampness that misted her cheeks. The arm retracted, and she looked at what it had watered. A fern tree. Water everywhere in this room, on a planet where water was the most precious juice of life. Water being wasted so conspicuously that it shocked her to inner stillness. She glanced out at the filter-yellowed sun. It hung low on a jagged horizon above cliffs that formed part of the immense rock uplifting known as the Shield Wall. Filter glass, she thought, to turn a white sun into something softer and more familiar. Who could have built such a place? Leto? It would be like him to surprise me with such a gift, but there hasn't been time, and he's been busy with more serious problems. She recalled the report that many Arakine houses were sealed by airlock doors and windows to conserve and reclaim interior moisture. Lito had said it was a deliberate statement of power and wealth for this house to ignore such precautions, its doors and windows being sealed only against the omnipresent dust. But this room embodied a statement far more significant than the lack of water seals on outer doors. She estimated that this pleasure room used water enough to support a thousand persons on Arrakis, possibly more. What is going on on this?
this planet. Mason noise. <laughs> that was intense. Intense and epic. Intense and epic. These are these are things that we do. Here in the MAC, baby. Three, Dune, Curiouser and Curiouser. How you feeling out there? How did how did you enjoy that that little bedtime story thing? Huh? Splash on you, drip on you. What? Hey, let me shout out those of you who left. Super chats during that thing. What up, Alec Moran? What up, Milky Mall Poet? What up, Luke? Said Almighty Shy Hulu, Keeper of the Balance. Bless the Maker and his water. Bless the coming and going of him. May his passage cleanse the world. <laughs> what up, Gaber 820 says, This is dope, thank you. Without Chris Owen says, bless the maker and his water, bless the coming and the going of him. May his passage claim the world. May he keep the world for his people. Yeah. Yeah. Splash. Drip. Work. Hey, it's the meaning stream. It's the only place you're gonna find an entertainment like this, baby. By Jove. You already know. Joshua Tran says 1,000 people is way bigger than I expected for the greenhouse. Big greenhouse. Hey, what up, Richard Young? Says hello, MAZ. How has the night been going? How is the fine ship wave rider? The ship is good, baby. The ship is parked up on a desert planet. And, uh, you know, the ship has been uncovering intrigue. Patrick Smith says book club was good. Hey. Links Nathan says the symbolist in me loves this kind of thing. The newfound Luddite worried. The Buddha nowhere to be found. Jim McCarthy says trip, trip, splash. Hey. What's interesting listening to this is how much of it George R.R. R. Martin stole for the Song of Ice and Fire. 
splash. Drip on your bitch like water. Splash. Splash on your bitch with the water. What? I feel like I'm 21 Savage. What? I pull up and fuck on your daughter. What? Drip on your bitch like water. What? Splash on your bitch with the water. What? I feel like I'm 21 Savage. What? I pull up and fuck on your daughter. Water. Yeah. Water. Down. Water. Water. You say I ain't shit, bitch. I'm ugly, God. I'm well known. I ain't got time for no wife. Yeah. Now the yo, you kiss bitches. I pipe. Yeah. Bitch, I feel like Yachty. Just give me one night. Yeah. And if she gay, I tell her I'm a fucking dyke. James Esperanza says, "Great book club." I mentioned it before, but for any authors, next month is National Novel Month. Damn. Write a novel in a month, 50k words, no less. I challenge you, authors. All right, riddle me this, Batman. Bitch, I'm What's 50k words a day in the course of a month? How many words a day is that? I feel like I'm 21 Savage. The triode says to write something not crap takes time. IMO, not necessarily. Water. If you manage to get yourself in some kind of flow state, or if you had really interesting dreams. Water, water. I don't know. Okay. Water. What? I mean, I'm pretty sure amazing things have been written in short amounts of time. Like water. Charles Bukowski wrote all his best shit in like water. bars, you know. Water. water. I don't know. Has it got to be a novel? Joshua Tran says 1,600 words a day. That's not that many words. Yeah. You could do that. Shit, maybe I'll do it. Hey, does it have to be a novel? Could it just be, uh, not just, could it be uh, something else? <laughs> like, I don't know, the kind of a book? Could it be a collection of musings? What is it? What are you doing? How could you finish so, so abruptly, song? Ugh. How could you finish so abruptly? Course song about water. My goodness. Uh, who's that guy I like? <laughs> Jeffrey Bernard. He wrote all this stuff in the pub as well. He was great. He just wrote stuff in the pub. You know? He had a typewriter at the corner of the bar. He sat there, cleared a closet, glaring at people. Yeah. James Esperanza says, I would read the Akira collection of musings. Chris Oerland said that song ran out of water. <laughs> Yo. It surely did. It, it ran out of juice. Michael Tapia says, hey, write a kind of story you will enjoy yourself. Exactly. You know, Stan Lee used to write like 15 comic books a month. Hmm, if you believe he was writing those comic books. Hmm. Hmm. Jack Kirby would have something to say on that matter. Do you know how many comic books Jack Kirby was doing a month? It was a lot. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I would love to see you guys write some novels next month. That would be really epic. Or write some, uh, you know, collections of musings. I'd love to see me do it too, frankly. Um, I don't want to escalate, you know, too much. I'm already doing two streams a day and uh, album plus per month you know I did I did, uh, I did the last album in two weeks <laughs> I 
I'd started another one. I'm going to see how, see how we do that, but I'm going for the I'm going for the personal record right now. been removing so much friction from my life. Try it says David Lynch says if you have 70 note cards you have enough scenes to produce a full length feature movie. Yeah, movies are short baby it's like what's in an hour and a half. You know what I mean? How long is this stream? The stream is two hours. Come on. James Esperanza says, my novel is heavily inspired by Twin Peaks and Dark City, one of my favorite sci-fi films. I keep, I really want to watch Dark City. I keep dreaming I watch it. I like, I just can't, how can I make time to watch a movie? I might have to like do a stream where we watch Dark City. How about that? Danica, she's a genius. She's doing a thing on Twitch where they watch TV. She's watching Children of Dune. And like, they, what, like, that's genius. I need to do like a Twitch thing where I just watch movies that I want to watch. And that's the whole stream. That's brilliant. Isn't the whole thing with Dark City... Actually, don't, don't spoil it for me, but like... I've, I've, from what I hear, it's very, very relevant to right now. YouTube Hero as Alex says, we can do that for morning shows on site. When, when I get my stream yeeted, it depend, I mean, I don't know. It depends what the... Um, I guess it depends what the thing is, and maybe if you whack some emojis over it or some shit. I don't know. Danica, I will get Danica on the show and ask her. She's doing it. But I guess Children of Dune is maybe, I don't know, maybe the copyright gods don't give too much of a shit about Children of Dune. Yeah. Triode says, my novel is inspired by Brave New World, 1984, Facebook, The Matrix, Neuromancer, and perhaps a Pyroman 5000 album or two. That's, that's a good, good pile. That's a good pile, baby. Yeah. Oh, man, now I'm like, hmm, we could watch movies. I wouldn't even need to soundtrack them. I could just sit there and watch them. That's all. I wouldn't have to do nothing. I checked out, I had a quick look into what Danica was up to earlier. She just straight up watched it a TV show. Come on. Yeah. I remember back in like 2012 or something when I was showing Nasty how to use the internet. I was like, look, ultimate thing for you, because he used, he used to just tweet about EastEnders. That's what blew him up. I was like, ultimate thing for you would be like EastEnders watch parties, and it could just be you laughing at EastEnders. EastEnders is a British soap opera. Nasty used to sit there laughing at it. <laughs> Horrible things, British soap operas. It's just loads of people's pain and suffering, you know? It's basically just poor people suffering. Nasty used to piss himself with that show. But I was like, the ultimate thing would be just you watching the show and laughing at it, you know? I guess you could do that shit now. James Esperanza says, watch Dark City on stream. You would make my year. Richard Young says, MAZ movie night. Maybe. Maybe that's what we do. Feels like it works. Anyway, <laughs> I'm getting out of it. I just, I just fought the time. I got albums to do, all that type of thing. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. I hope you enjoyed the book club. I hope you enjoyed the book club. Thank you to everyone who supported. If you want to support the wave, uh, go to miniwave.com. Uh, Cops and fly merch. Go to Bandcamp. Download, download the music. I'm rubbing my hands together like Birdman. Hey, hey. Uh, you know, uh, right meaning wave exists on a on a message. You know, put it in a bottle. 
and send that out to sea, and then someone will get that message in a bottle, you know? And then they'll know, hey, Meanie Wave exists. Hurrah, hurrah, ship is docked, all passengers bugger off. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. We'll be back tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. CT on Twitch for uh, Meaning Wave Morning Show, or should we say the Meaning Wave Morning Epic Party Time Shebang. Uh, we just hit a thousand followers, so I guess we're going to have to have a party in the morning. Party in the morning, 1,000. 1,000 subs on Twitch, party in the morning. Yeah! Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Get FE after it. And, uh, yeah, YouTube Hero Alex says, we're working on a complete line of Meaning Wave principal flyers. Really? Really? That sounds nice. Um, that sounds delightful. Um, wonderful. All right, thank you, guys. Love you. Uh, let's do bye five. There you go. That's what you do. Three, a two, a one. A splash.